Lord Jesus, come before you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love and care for us, Lord. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at this section of scripture and that you will show us what you would have us to see in this. In Jesus' name, amen. Second Corinthians chapter 1. We'll go ahead and read verse 1, even though we covered it last week. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, and with all the saints which are in Achaia, grace be, un- be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercy and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in, in trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds by Christ. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer, or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. All right, so we're going to look at this first part of this chapter. And remember, last week we said that Paul wrote at least three, if not four, letters to the Corinthians, of which we only have two as scripture. And we're going to find in 2 Corinthians that he's answering a bunch of questions, so it indicates that they wrote him a letter between, the, between these, and, and we don't know exactly what that letter is because we lost it. Okay? So we want to cover this. In verse 2 it says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, quite, quite a lot of them are started that way. He had, usually identifies himself as an apostle, identifying who's with him, and then usually his statement is, grace be to you and peace. In this case, he adds a lot of extra stuff that he doesn't usually add. But, you know, we look at this, and, and I was looking up the word grace, and I'm, I want to read this definition. It's a long definition. It is the merciful kindness by which God, exerting his holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ, keeps, strengthens, increases them in Christ, in Christian faith, knowledge, affection, and kindles them to the exercise of Christian virtue. Now that's a pretty powerful definition for grace, and I want to look at that a little closer as we kind of tear that apart. Merciful kindness. That's the part of grace we almost always think about, is how kind God is to us by his grace. But it also says that God exerts his influence on souls. Okay, And this is very true. God chases people down to get them to come to him. He uh, works in their life. He puts uh, uh, circumstances together to get people to come to him. And then once we're saved... He gives us circumstances to come to him and, and allow him to do more in our life. But it says it turns them to Christ. For the people who need to be saved, the whole purpose of grace is to turn them to him. And we look at people sometimes and say, well, they're beyond salvation. Well, no, nobody's ever beyond salvation until the moment that their spirit leaves their body. And they've rejected Jesus Christ. That is when they're beyond Salvation. Up until that point, they are perp- they are people that can be saved. But you know, we look at this and it says God's grace 
turns us to him. And, it, and then he says, he keeps us, grace keeps us, strengthens us, and increases us in Christian faith. Oh, great. I mean, we talked about that this morning, you know. Grace. Everything is about grace. You know, uh, that is how we're kept. That's how we, we're strengthened. It, it increases us. And then it says in Christian knowledge, a faith, knowledge, affection. Okay. How do we learn to love one another? By God's grace. You know, and then it says, and it kindles them to the exercise of Christian virtues, how to live correctly. So grace is such a powerful word. And grace, you know, it surprised me when I looked at it, but grace is only used 156 times in the scripture. You know, I thought it was going to be higher than that. The word grace in the New Testament is only 156 times. And I was shocked. I thought it was going to be much higher. And then he says, after grace to you and peace. And, you know, we've given the definition of peace, so we're not going to cover this too much, but it is the tranquil state of a soul, assured of its state through Christ, and so not fearing nothing from God, and content with its earthly lot, whatsoever state that is. Yeah, I'll get that for you. You know, but that's what peace is. We know that we're in God. We know that he's in charge. We know that we're saved and going to heaven, so we have no fear of God, and we learn contentment. Contentment in God. Okay? I'm content with my earthly lot. Why? Because God's in charge. This is what peace is all about. I would go peace. I would say peace more than happiness. I would say peace more than happiness, but then peace leads to, to a happy state usually. And contentment is just that. I am content wherever God has placed me. You know, people have asked me, you know, because I've moved around all my life, they go, well, what was your favorite place? And my answer has been very standard, wherever God has me at at the moment. Because I've learned that every place I have has good and bad. Every place. It doesn't really matter whether, you know, and you know, the amazing thing to me, everywhere I go, I hear the same comment. You know, it's raining now, but just wait, it'll change in a few minutes. You know, everywhere believes that their weather is different from every place else. <laughs> and it's just amazing to me, you know, in New England, you hear it all the time. Well, it's, it's sunshine, but it'll be raining in a little bit. You know, especially in, in Washington, you heard it a lot. You know, it's raining, we might have sunshine in a little bit. <laughs> uh, you know, but everybody has this idea that their place is the only place where the weather changes frequently. When you live in the tropics, you end up with the same thing. It's sunny now, but it's going to rain sometime today. Uh, you know, but you know, are we content with where God has placed us? If we're not in content, we live a miserable life because we're always wanting something else. And you're never happy. Never happy. Never happy if you're wanting something else, something better, something different. Well, I know people who say, well, if I just had X, I'd be happy. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's how most people spend their entire time. Because true contentment can only be through God. He's the only one that can give us true contentment because when we are sitting down with God and saying, God, you're in control. I can be content because God is in control. If I think that I'm in control, I'm never going to be content because I'm not, I can't control anything. Peace is from God. 
And it says, from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. All of this comes from God. And we'll never be content without God because, as Pascal said, we all have a God-shaped vacuum in our, in our soul. And when it, it is God-shaped, it can only be filled by God. Because only God can fill a God-shaped hole. Nothing else is going to fill it, no matter how much of it we get. And so Paul is talking about everything is from God. In verse 3, it says, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort. Blessed, praise, adoration. You know, blessed be God. You know, and this is something to praise God, to praise God with everything we have. Uh, God wants praise for some reason, wants us to praise him. You know, you know all through the all through the Psalms we're told, praise the Lord, praise you the Lord, over and over and over again, huh? Make a joyful noise. You know, be, be joyful before God. And then it says, blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort. You know, the, the God, the Father of mercy. You know, have you thought about the idea of him being merciful? God is the Father of of all mercy. And mercy is not getting what we deserve. God is the one who says, I'm not going to give you what you deserve. You know, now, when it comes to the judgment time, mercy ceases. At that time, he's judge. At the white throne judgment, there is not mercy, there is justice. And so this is why we have to have Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior before we get to the white throne judgment. So we thought if we've repented, we've already had mercy and it's covered when we get there. Right, because we as Christians won't stand at the white throne judgment. We stand at the Bema seat where our acts of service are judged, thrown into the fire in the wood, hay, and stubble, our, our works burn up, and what he has done in our life, we get rewarded for. That's where we as Christians will stand. The lost will stand before him at the white throne judgment, and there is no mercy at the white throne judgment. Because it is judge, it is justice. We don't stand the Christians won't, because we our sins are covered. When they stand at the white throne judgment, they are guilty. We've stood at the bema seat. We do, we stand in judgment, but we stand at the bema seat of Christ, which is the judgment seat of Christ, and He will judge our works that we whether we did them wood hay and stubble and they'll burn up, or whether we allowed God to work through our through us which will be gold, silver, and precious stones, which we then we get our rewards for. And so this is where we're at. He says, he's the father of all mercy. And I love this, the God of all comfort, solace, consolation. You know, you know, isn't it wonderful when you just concentrate on God, how comforting it is to know that we are in him. David says, Yea, though I walk through the shadow of the valley of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. You know, he, he makes me to lay down in green pastures. He brings me beside still water. You know, and David understood the need of sheep to have green pastures and still water. I've been told that if a sheep tries to drink from a, stream, a flowing stream, and even if a leaf flows by, they'll fall over. 
Now, I don't know if that's true, but I've been told that. And I kind of believe it because David said they need still water. So I kind of believe it because I know how dumb sheep are. I had a friend that just had a handful of sheep in a little tiny hill on the, on the piece of property. That, and sometimes they would get, one of them would get behind the hill and not see the other sheep. They're only, they're only three feet away. And he'd be going crazy, he or she, I don't know what, you know, he'd be going crazy. And when we were in the middle of prayer or study, he'd have to go out and say, just a moment, I got to go help that sheep. And he'd, you know, bump the sheep around the corner so he could see the rest of the sheep. You know, sheep are not very smart animals. When God calls us sheep, he is not a compliment. He's going, you guys are sheep. I have to watch you every second or you're going to get into trouble. But thank you, God, for loving us anyway. Yes, he loves us anyway. But God is the God of all comfort. Do you know that word? notice that word, all comfort? If we're being comforted, it's God. Now, when we get into sin, sometimes we get into sin and think we're being comforted. You know, because sin has pleasure for a short period of time. But, you know, sin always escalates and needs more sin. You know, the first time you get your drinks, it, it, it is that buzz and that feels good until you can't get there anymore or you get drunk you know, and, and have all the problems. The first, there's a pleasure in it for a short time, but it, sin always demands more, more and more and more. And, you know, to have true comfort only comes from God. And I love being comforted by God. It's a lot of fun. When I'm walking in sin, there's no fun in sin in the long run. And it always has consequences. That's that sin is always found out. Yes. And I'm out Yep. Well, that's because the scriptures say, say that your sin will be sure your sin will find you out. And sin always has consequences. Now, we've got to keep that in mind. And the consequences will affect others around us. More so than it affects you. Usually more so than it affects you. Because our sin has repercussions that we never fully appreciate. They keep walking up. It's, it's like throwing the rock in the middle of a pond and watching the ripples go further and further out. Sin has consequences and it affects others. There's no such thing as the world, well, I'm only hurting myself. No. Even if you do, or only hurting yourself, when you get hurt, you're going to hurt somebody that loves you. Because everybody has somebody that loves them, other than usually a mom or a grandma at least, but usually there's somebody that loves everybody. Uh, I, can't, I can't say there's some, everybody would, but you know, everybody I know has at least one person that loves them. But you know, God is the God of all comforts, and then I love it, verse 4, who comforts us in all our tribulation. And this literally is pressures, not all just trials, but every pressure. You know, God is there if we will just turn to him. Our trouble usually comes from the fact that we don't turn to him yeah. until after we've gone through a lot of suffering and pain and, and heartache. And then we go, well, you know, maybe I'll turn to God and see if he can fix it. And God's been saying, well, about time. <laughs> I've been waiting here to give you this blessing. I've been here waiting for you to help you. He is the God who wants to comfort us in all of our tribulations. And then it says that we may be able to comfort them which are in trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. God comforts us so that we can learn how to comfort others. Okay? 
And this is something we've talked about even this morning. We are given grace. Why are we given grace? So that we can give grace back. We are given God's love so that we can give back his love. We are given comfort by God so that we can comfort others. We can build them up. We can edify. We can encourage them. Uh, this is what it means. God's saying, I'm giving you an example. His example is his love toward us. And we're supposed to apply that love back to others. What he shows us is what we're supposed to do. Now, most of us as Christians do not do a good job reflecting God back to others. We, we need to work on that because God is saying we're his representatives. We are ambassadors of Christ. And we shared this with you. An ambassador is a representative of a country that they, they're from. And they are to show that country what those people are, are what that, you know, be a representative of that country they're from to some other country. We are ambassadors of God to this world that doesn't know, understand, or care about God. So we want to be able to say, I'm going to show and reveal God to others. I'm going to lift him up and show others his love, his mercy, his grace. I'm going to be able to show them that God is who he is. Because most people have this bad picture of God, and we've shared this, you know, uh, I've shared this, and one of my descriptions is that most people look at God as if he's playing whack-a-mole with them. If they dare to stick their head out from a cover, they're waiting for him to hit him with a hammer. That's not our God. Okay? But yet, that is the way most Christians, if not many Christians anyway, look at God. God, if I, just, if I dare to do anything, you're just waiting to, to throw a lightning bolt at me to crush me. That is not what God is trying to do. God wants to love us. He wants us to step out and serve him. Step out and honor him. And, you know, he wants to be the God that comforts us so that we can comfort others. And verse 5 says, For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds by Christ. You know, verse 5 there says that we... Basically, it says we will suffer for Christ. Yeah. And this is true. How many Christians have this idea that when I become a Christian, everything is going to be good? Too many. Too many. You know, uh, but Paul is saying, as f for as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, he, he understood. You know, when Paul goes through his life sharing what he went through, you know, he shared all the time what he went through. Shipwrecks, beatings, torture, prison, uh, a couple of times where he was stoned, one time that he was probably dead and resurrected. You know, he, didn't, he didn't sugarcoat it. He says, look, I'm doing, you know, this is what God's been doing to me. You read the apostles, and so many times the apostles were beat, and, and I love their answers that they gave. Thank God he found us worthy of suffering for him. What's the average Western Christian's attitude? God, why am I suffering? It's terrible that I'm suffering. Oh, woe is me. God, you've abandoned me. You know, and God's saying, I'm giving you suffering so that you'll be able to minister to those who suffer. You know, we need to be careful about this. God never promised us a bed of roses. You know, Jesus said they hated me, they're going to hate you. And what did they do to Jesus? They put him on a cross. Yeah. And should we expect anything less? 
Jesus said that the servant is not greater than the master. They crucified me. They hated me. They're going to hate you. And it's an amazing thing, especially in America, where we've grown up in a country that was basically Christian-oriented, and we have not suffered in America the way most of the world has suffered for Christ. And I met a lot of people from behind the Iron Curtain who would go, well, you know, we've been praying for American Christians that they learn what it means to suffer. They do. Because they don't understand how American Christians don't suffer. And you know, in one sense, I agree with them. You know, most American Christians don't suffer because nobody knows they're Christians in the first place in many cases. They don't stand on the word of God. They don't, they don't uh, you know, put this in. The quote we put on the PowerPoint from Tozier, the modern Christians are too tolerant, too easygoing, and too much looking for you know, being peaceful with other people instead of saying this is what God says. Now we can say this is what God says without being obnoxious and rude and all of that, but are we willing to say God calls that a sin? We need to be able to say, God calls it a sin. I'm not judging you, but God calls it a sin. When people are living together in fornication, God calls that a sin. When people are committing adultery, God calls that sin. If people are drunken, drunkards, God calls that sin. Okay? All of these things that we look at and say, there are certain things God calls sin. And we can't say, well, you know, it's, it's okay just because the world says it's okay. Now, that doesn't mean I'm judging people. I'm not going to put it down. You know, we as Christians have a statement that we make that God loves the sinner and hates the sin. Now, the world can't separate the two. When you talk to the world, they do not separate what somebody does from who they are. Okay? It's just not, they're not capable of it. So when we say God loves the sinner or that we as Christians love the sinner, and hate the sin, the world does not understand that statement because they think the two are the same thing, whereas we know that a person is a person and the sin is another, another point. Okay, now if you do the sin long enough, then it becomes closer and closer to who you are, but God says, I can still separate those two, and he will separate those two, but the world doesn't understand it. And you know, even we as Christians, we may say it, but it's hard for us to separate the person from the sin. And that's what God's asking us to do. Love that person. I, you know, when I love somebody who is, who is actively sinning, it's not that I love what they're doing. I love them and want to see them go to heaven, not hell, and be comforted by God and, and living for God. And not going to say their sin is, is okay. And here this, this idea is suffering abounds in us so that our consolation, our comfort for others, will abound. Now, one of the things that happens to people is when they've gone through something, they're a little more tender-hearted toward people who are going through the same thing that, they, that they've gone through. If somebody has not gone through something or gone through trials enough to be able to extrapolate what's going on, then they don't have a lot of comfort for other people. Uh, this is one of the things I've noticed, you know, and I've always wondered, you know, God, why do some people get saved and instantly most everything in their life changes? And then other people, like myself, take years to, to grow. Well, one of the things I've learned are those people who get changed drastically overnight, they don't have a lot of patience for those of us who need to take time to grow. I think that it's a greater blessing to t need to take time to grow because it teaches me that 
if I had to struggle through this, other people are going to have to struggle through it. Now, the people who had big changes, they still have things they had to struggle through, but they don't have any patience for those things that they got over quickly. Well, I gave up cigarettes in, in 24 hours. How come you couldn't? Well, because God didn't give me that grace to do that. I got over drinking instantly. How come you can't? You know, uh, I gave up my, my fornication instantly. Why can't you? Know, there's, there's that attitude of, I had this happen. Well, God gave you a special gift. I'm glad he did. But think about the things you're struggling with because nobody lives a life where they don't struggle. Nobody. We all struggle with something in our life. And God says, look at that sin and, and be able to look at others and give them the same grace that you want. Mm -hmm. And we all are in this place where we need to learn to be compassionate with one another, yes. to build one another up, to edify, to, to accept people. Again, not accepting their sin and their, and their bad behaviors, but accepting who they are, a sinner saved by grace or a sinner that needs grace, we, either, either way. You know, but we go back to this grace, you know, that God wants to influence us. Grace influences us. The greatest thing I have learned over my years is that grace changes lives. Law does not change life. Law condemns. Law makes people feel guilty. God's grace will change their life. And the grace basically says, no, your sin is not okay, but God loves you still. And this is what grace does. We're, for by grace are we saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. We all come through grace. And it's God's grace that keeps us. And it's God's grace that will take us home to heaven. You know, everything about God and its dealings with us is because of grace. You know, and how do we get the grace? Is because of what God did through Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus paid for sin. You know, this is so important. On the cross, Jesus became sin for every single person that's going to walk on this world. What sends people to hell is rejecting Christ. What sends people to heaven is receiving Christ. It's a either or. You've either rejected him or you've accepted him. And there's no in-between ground. This is why it's so critical for us to be able to look and see where we're at with God. Have I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior? If I have, I'm going to heaven. If I haven't, I'm going to hell, no matter how good I may appear to other people. Because God says in Isaiah that all our righteousness is filthy rags. So if I lived a virtually perfect life by human standards, God would say, not enough, not perfect, not good enough. Your, stand, your righteousness just isn't good enough. And you know what? Jesus paid for the sins. So when people stand at the white throne judgment before God, they're going to stand in their own righteousness. And God's going to say, sorry, filthy rags don't enter heaven. You're guilty. You rejected my son. And he will show them every time that they rejected Jesus Christ. And, you know, this is so important for us. Have we accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior? 
that whole idea of believing and putting all my trust and faith in him. Because Jesus said in that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't I? And that's kind of scary to me when he says that. Because what do they list? You know, I cast out demons. I went and I fed the poor. I gave to the, I gave to the widows. I, I, you know, did this. I fed, I clothed the naked, you know. I cast out demons. I did all these wonderful spiritual things. Isn't that enough? And God's going to say, nope, I never knew you. You know, and this is why it's important. If you don't trust them for everything, find yourself not trusting them for everything, does that necessarily mean that you're not, no. not saved or it's just a weak? means that you need to learn to trust him better in all your areas. Now, if you're not trusting him in any area, then you might have to, then you might have to worry, worry about are you saved. But, uh, and as I've said, the question you look at is, am I being changed by God? If I am the same person that I was a year ago, five years ago, and I'm not spiritually growing, and things haven't been worked out in my life, then I might have to look at God and say, do I really know you? Am I your child? Is your spirit living in me? I mean, there are things that, that you don't do now that you might have done five years ago. Exactly. But also, you still can still slip. Oh, we're always going to slip. We're always going to slip. We are not going to become perfect in this lifetime. I mean, and it's easy for the old man to like. It's easy for the old man to raise its head, but even beyond that, the closer I get to God, the greater the light shines in my life and the more I see my sin. Paul said at the end of his life, I'm the chiefest of sinners. And he was not referring back to when he persecuted the church. He was looking at his life and saying, God is shining so bright a light into my life that I'm really starting to see how wicked I really am. I can tell you right now, in many ways, I feel more sinful at times now than I did 30, 40 years ago because of the sins God's revealing to my heart. Things I wouldn't even have thought about 30 years ago. You know, that look I gave to somebody or the, way, the word I said to somebody that was just a little sarcastic or off, the, the little quip that I made that was maybe on the gossip side, you know, that I wouldn't even have thought about 30 years ago. And, you, and God shines that light into you. So in one sense, the closer you get to him, the more you see your sin. The things that you used to be able to get away with, but now you can't get away with. The, the comments you used to be able to say that might have been just a little off color and all of a sudden you had no problem with it 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Now all of a sudden it's like, oh, okay, God, uh, you think that's wrong. Okay. You know, and w if you're getting to this where every time you're getting closer to God, he's working in you, then you can say, I'm his child. I'm growing. But if you say, I haven't had much change in my life. I don't see much change. And believe me, I've seen people that look this way. Now, I don't know what's in their heart. But from the outside, you look, is this person ever growing? Are they, are they ever changing? You know, are they getting convicted of anything? They're still saying, you know, still saying all the bad words. They're still saying the off-color jokes. They're still, they're still hardly, you know, being nice to people. And you know them for years, and it's go, God, you know, I can't judge them, but God, is this a person your child? And I can't judge them. That's something, you know, we're to work out our salvation ourselves and to build upon one, you know, and be able to move toward others.
Right. If, if you see no food in somebody's life, you're, you should be praying for them. Because if there's no growth, they need God no matter what. So we're looking at this and saying, but that's how we comfort one another. We encourage one another because we see what they're going through. And we want to see them grow. And it says that, you know, they will suffer. And it says on here, and as the sufferings of a Christ abound in us, you know, which means are great, are multiplied. <laughs> you know, one of the things about suffering gives us empathy for other people, gives us the desire to reach out to them. But you know, this whole idea of abounding in Christ, learning to love the body of Christ. You know, there are so many people who go, well, I don't like the body of Christ. They hurt me. Well, yes, they're going to hurt you. They're people. They're people. They're going to make mistakes. But when we're hurt by others, it gives us a chance to show Christian love and, and grace and mercy to them. You know, do they deserve it? Absolutely not. <laughs> you know, if I say something sarcastic, do I deserve their forgiveness? Absolutely not. Now, I hope that they will forgive me because usually I do it without, without meaning any, anything behind it. But you know, every time we suffer, it's our opportunity to grow and show love and compassion to the person that's bringing our suffering to us. And Paul's saying, our suffering in Christ is going to abound. Why? Because God decides he knows he can trust us. And that's why the apostle said, thank God he found us worthy of suffering. You know, and we need that attitude. God, don't know why you're allowing this for it to come into my life, but you know, you're, you've promised that all things work together. I know you're sovereign. I know that you're a good God with good plans for me. So I'm just going to trust you. Now, is that easy to do? It takes a long time to get there. I'm a lot closer to it than I used to be, but I still have a long ways to go. The idea of when we go through hardship is to be able to say, God, I'm looking forward to whatever you're going to do. Whatever good it is that you're doing. And as I've pointed out, it may not be something that's good for you. It may just be somebody being able to look, as Paul says, look at you going through the suffering, seeing you following God, and be encouraged by your faithfulness. Which means the good was not really for your good, but for their good. And I've told you the story, and I don't use it to, as a bragging, but you know, when I was walking around for six months with a gout attack at the church, about a year later, somebody told me how encouraged they were to go through their light pains when they saw me on crutches for six months, serving God. You know, what was my pain for? It wasn't for me. <laughs> it was painful. It was not, not good at all. But they were able to look at it and say, if he can do that through God, I can do it. But I use this as an example just so that when we go through something and we look at it and say, God, why is this? What am I going to learn from this? Maybe just faithfulness. Maybe just trust in him. Maybe for somebody else to see the faithfulness and be encouraged. What we go through may just be for others. It may be to prepare us for down the road when we come across somebody else who's gone through the same thing we've gone through. And it's very important for us to be able to, because you, we want to be careful with empathy, but you know, we want, empathy is important. For somebody who's been homeless, they're more empathetic with people who are homeless than those who have never been homeless. Now, that empathy can go way too far as well, so be careful with empathy. Because you can get into this, you know, whole thing of, well, yeah, I fully understand what you're doing. You know, no, we don't want to go there, but we want to be, 
yes, I understand that you're having problems. Let's help you out. Or, you know, you have this problem with alcohol. Let's, let's help you out. You know, we want to be careful because empathy can go way too far, but yet we need this idea of we need to help one another. But, you know, the, truthfully, if we realize that we're all sinners, we all have problems, we have empathy right at the beginning. So, so your problem isn't my problem. If you knew what my problems were, you might not, be, might not like me. You know? So you know, we need to be able to look and say, everybody has problems. All sin has the same root condition, and all sin is addictive. It doesn't matter what the sin is, it is addictive. Maybe not physically addictive, but psychologically and, and spiritually, it can be very addictive. You know, uh, somebody who becomes a pathological liar over time, they're addicted to lying. They just can't help themselves because that's who they've become. Okay, it's just as addictive as alcohol and, and drugs over a period of time, but it's not a physical addiction. It is an emotional and, and, and uh, soul addiction. So we want to be careful when we look at these things and say, if somebody's trying to help us be well, that what they've gone through is just as bad. Just as bad. Just as hard to get through. Just, you know, sin is anything that separates us from God. Any thought, action, or deed that keeps us from God. You know, and this is something that's important for us to understand. Why do mature Christians have, get to the place where they see their sin? Because they start realizing that all my thought life is just as bad as all my active life. And you might work out all your, you know, all your physical acting out sins and still have a miserable thought life that keeps you in trouble. And this is something that's critical for us. And this is why I said, you know, as we mature and God shines a brighter light into us, and you know, I've, I've just described this, you know, if we're sitting in this room and we turned off all the lights and the sun is just barely streaming in, this room is going to look a lot cleaner to us than if we put a big 10,000 candle, you know, or 10 million candle light in here and all of a sudden we see every little speck of dust and, and everything. Well, that's how God works with us as we're Christians. It starts out with just a little candle and saying, okay, let's clean up, let's clean up what the candle <laughs> shows. All right, let's put a 40-watt bulb or a 24-watt bulb and gets to a 100, 200-watt bulb, and it's like, oh, yeah, get back to the 20-watt bulb. It doesn't look as bad in here. Yeah, give me back to the candle. I, I like that candle, God. I don't like this, like this 200-watt bulb shining in my life. You know, and this is where we're at. You know, we're going to suffer. And it's so that God can comfort us, so that we can learn to comfort others. Now, God's going to comfort them too, but sometimes people have to see the comfort from somebody else before they start to accept it from God. Because if Christians reject other Christians and other non-Christians their, for their actions, then people are going to say, God rejects me. Which is why I said this morning, the most powerful statement you can make when witnessing to somebody is God loves you. That has power. If you can think of nothing else to say to somebody, tell them God loves them. Because they might start even thinking, what if it's true? They might try to just, you know, ah, you don't know. If you knew what I do, God loves you. And quote John 3.16 to them. You know, God loves you. He loves me. He loves you. He loves everybody. No matter what they've done, no matter what they're doing, God loves them. And that's what the constellation, when we go through suffering, God comes along and says, I still love you. I still care for you. Now show others my love. 
Most of us, when we became Christian, became a Christian because somebody showed us God's love. Not condemnation, not criticism, but they came along and they showed us that God loves us. Whether, like me, at a very young child, saw somebody who seemed to love me and, and made that response to people who have come from very hard conditions and found out that God loves them. The constellation of God through our trials and our tribulations. Verse 6 says, for, for with, and that should be if, and if we be afflicted, is for your constellation and salvation, it, which is effectual in enduring of the same suffering which we also suffer, or whether we be comforted, it is for your constellation and salvation. Why does God put me through this? And this is why I say this is an if. God, if God puts me through suffering, and he will, okay, this is an if that is not if, if, you know, and he may, may or may not. This is if and he will. God will put us through suffering. Why? So that we will turn to him and get constellation. And as Paul said here, we go through the affliction so that others will see the affliction. Others will respond to God because of our affliction. Now, the unfortunate thing is so many times we fail the test. <laughs> and we fail the test. And we fail the test. And you know what? God has this plan that he does not move on to the next test if we keep failing the current test. Okay? He is not like our public school system that said, okay, we, you failed the test, tough. Figure out how it is. We're moving on to the next step. Now, the problem is when you fail the previous step and, you don't, and you're not ready for the next step, you're not going to pass the second step either. Or you're going to struggle for the rest of your career because you didn't pass each step. God says, oh, this is the 5,000th time we've given you this test. You know, I'm patient enough. I'll keep giving you the same test. If you want the same test, I'll give you the same test. You know, some of us are pretty slow at times. I, I told you my story. I went through six years learning a lesson. And the problem is, we said this earlier, you know, sin always has a consequence and sin always affects other people. If we fail God's test, it takes us into sin. And we affect other people. Now, how many people? Depends on who we are and, and what our station is in life. But we are going to affect other people. A husband, father affects his entire family. A mother affects their family. Um, church members will affect other church members. You know, we all will affect other people. And God is saying, I go through the, we go through this tribulation so that others can, get, can see my steadfastness. As I get comforted, they see that they can be comforted. Very important. We as human beings do not like abstract abstractions very much. Now, we talk about people who get into the abstract world and everything. But you know, everybody, if they try to tell you what's going on in the abstract world, what do they try to do? They give you concrete images to try to make you understand the abstract because that's what they're doing with the abstract. When God says, I'm going to send you suffering and constellation, we need to see others go through it and say, oh, it can be. We can be victorious. We can be comforted. We can have the solace. Because look, they're going through it, or at least apparently going through it. And then we came along and say, you know what? God really loves you. He's got a great plan for you. He's going to help you get through this. 
How do you know? Because he's done it for me. This is why Paul went over and over so many times. I've taken, you know, uh, 40 stripes on three occasions. I've been, I've been beat. I've been thrown in. I've been shipwrecked. I've been in the, you know, been in the ocean for, you know, three days. You know, he kept going through that. Not to say, look at me, how special I am, but look what God has done to me, and I've still come through serving God. Why do we love those testimonies of people that have gone through hardships? Because it tells us that God is faithful. Why do we read things like uh, Corey Tenboom's The Hiding Place or Brother Andrew's God Smuggler or, or these other books, you know, that talk about these people going through hard times because we get encouraged. If they can make it through those hard times, just maybe God will help me through those hard times. We read it in the scriptures. You know, wow, look at all that Abraham went through. Look at what J Joseph went through. Look at Look what these guys went through. If God can do it for them, just maybe he can do it for me. And it's not just maybe, he will do it for us if we will just bend our will and our desire toward him. And uh, so it says, you know, this, whether we be afflicted, it, it is for your consolation, which is effectual and enduring of the same suffering, effectual, making work, giving power to. Because I suffer, you see that God is allowing it. You know, we need to be able to understand, you know, sometimes Christians want to hide our suffering, our temptations, and our, and our failures, so that people will look at us as being super spiritual or something. I don't know what we're trying to get. But you know, Paul never hid these things. He goes, I've got problems. We talked about Peter earlier. Peter had lots of problems. You know, uh, you know, a lot of people have described Peter as food and mouth, having food and mouth disease. You know, he, he always had something else to say. On the Mount of Transfiguration, where Moses and, and Elijah come and talk with Jesus, you know, I love the statement that's brought out. And Peter, because he did not know what to say, said, shall we make booze for you? <laughs> okay, but that little statement, because Peter did not know what to say. How many times do we speak when we should be silent. God, you haven't given me anything to say. I don't have anything to say, but let me say something because I need, to, I, I need to look smart or I need to look like I know something. Sometimes silence is the best answer for us. Sometimes when somebody's criticizing us, most of the time even when somebody's criticizing us, silence is the best answer for them. You know, when we use a soft answer it really does kind of irritate people sometimes and make them wonder. You know, have you ever seen somebody who didn't defend themselves and let God be their defender? I say this over and over. It's so important. Let God be your defender. Because what ends up happening, even if you are innocent and you start defending yourself, everybody always wonders, well, is there any truth to these accusations that they're defending themselves? Well, you get... Shakespeare, you do, you do protest too much. <laughs> you know, uh, you know you're, you're going in and saying you're defending yourself so hard that people go, is there some truth in it? You know, and we need to be careful. You know, usually, the more we open our mouth, the more problems we have <laughs> in our defense. Uh, so a lot of times, it's just better just to be quiet. Let God defend you. And I can tell you one thing. When you let God defend you, he does it right. 
Sometimes he defends a lot harder than I would have ever wanted to see. And there's times when people have come against me that I've prayed that they don't get everything that they deserve. Because I've seen people get drastically hurt by attacking pastors and attacking, attacking people in charge of things and going, oh, you guys don't know what you're getting into. You, know, you don't know what you're getting into to attack one of God's men. You know, Korah came up against, and his family came up against Moses, and what happened to them? The ground opened up and swallowed them. Okay, Miriam attacked Moses, and she was struck with leprosy. You, know, you don't attack God's people, especially not his leaders, but any of his children. You don't attack his children, because God will say, I'm going to defend them. He defends the widow. He defends the orphan. He defends the weak. He defends the poor. He defends the needy. And his defense can be harsh. You know, somebody really going after them might find themselves in a lower place than they are <laughs> if they're not careful. This is why I keep always telling people, let God defend you. Let, let him, you know, he's, he's, a great, he's great at defending. You know, number one, he knows everything. He knows exactly how to make the defense work. You know, he knows just what that person needs to humble them. He knows just what they need that they're going to pay attention to. Now, we may think that we're doing the right thing, and it's just they look at it and laugh. You know, you, know, you hit the guy who can hold his gut so tight that he doesn't feel it. You hit him with all your force, and he doesn't feel it. You know, hit him in his knee, and it's a different story. <laughs> okay? God knows where the person's weak. You know, and he goes, I can defend. I will arise and defend if we will allow him to. Now, if we want to defend ourselves, God will say, okay, I'm just going to stand back and you go ahead and defend yourself. Now, I will, I'll stand up here and laugh and have a great time watching you try to defend yourself. I don't know if he's going to laugh, but, you know, you know what a comedy show sometimes we put on when we try to defend ourselves, if we really step back and look. Right. Uh, and God's saying, well, you know, you, you want to defend yourself. Okay, you, you go ahead and defend yourself. Usually. Mm -hmm. And that's just it. Be still. Be still. And God will defend us. You know, and beside the point, just as we've been talking about, most of the time when we're being attacked, it's our opportunity to say, I'm suffering for Christ. Let me, let me now live out Christ in front of this person. And, you know, people are won by that soft response back to them. You know, Paul said to the people that, you know, wives, if you have an unbelieving husband, be gentle and show them the love. And by so doing, you may win them to Christ. Not sitting there arguing every moment, well, we've got to go to church, we've got to do this, we've got to do that. That doesn't mean you don't go to church, you don't read your Bible, but you don't sit there and say, we've got to do it as a family. You just gently give the example of what it means to be a godly person. Godly wife, a godly person in whatever situation it is. You know, and too many times we fight so desperately for our rights. I have the right to do this. Well, you might have the right to do that. You have the liberty to do that. But does that mean it's the right thing to do? You know, remember, we talked about this. Paul said that we have the liberty to do just about anything. But is our liberty in Christ always the best thing? No. 
In, in one case, he was talking about, you know, I have the liberty to eat meat offered to idols. It's no big deal. It's just a hunk of, hunk of stone, gold, or, or wood. But if it's going to offend a brother, don't do it. Okay? If I have the right to, to drink alcohol, but it's going to make another brother or sister uh, be offended, don't do it. Now, as a, as a pastor, I don't want to do it because it's easy to offend somebody and make them think, well, if a pastor can do it, it's not a problem, and it may be a problem for them. I've never been one who wants to drink alcohol. Not that I think it's wrong necessarily, but I know my personality. Well, I know my personality. I know I couldn't drink it. I do everything in excess. So, it, uh, I mean, I drink my gallon of tea a day, and if I put alcohol in it, it would probably be a gallon of alcohol. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be a small amount. So I know my personality can't do it. But I also don't want to be a bad example. Right. Yeah. You know, I don't want to be a bad example to people and say, well, if he can do it, well, you know, pastor can do it, well, it must be okay. And it's not okay for them. Okay. What we look at is all things are lawful to us if we truly believe. Now, the question I have for people, because people will go to me, can I do such and such? And the answer is, if you're asking me, no, you can't. <laughs> Normally, that's what it is. You have doubts on whether it's right or wrong. You don't have the liberty to do it. Okay? If you have the liberty to run over to Laughlin and gamble and you don't have any you know, doubts about it, and you don't have anybody, well, I wonder if this is something I should. As soon as you say, I wonder if this is something I should do, you shouldn't be doing it. Plain and simple. Okay? Because at that time, you are not walking in the liberty of it. You're, if you have doubts on whether you should be doing it, stop doing it. You know, I've had too many people come up to me and go, well, should I be, you think I can do this? No. Or I want you to listen to this speaker because I don't, you know, I just want to see if they're good. Well, the first thing I've learned over the years, if you have your doubts about that speaker, they're probably not somebody you're supposed to be listening to. I used to listen to the tapes, you know, back in the day, tapes. And usually within five minutes, I would go, no, you're not supposed to listen to it. And then it started dawning on me. Every time somebody asked me to listen to something, it was something bad. There was, the Holy Spirit was already telling them, don't do it. Don't listen to this person. So if you get to the place where you have questions on whether you should be listening to a speaker or doing something or, or watching this television show or this, this evangelist or listening to this person, if you have doubts, don't do it. Don't do it. But don't ask somebody else to listen for you to check it out because the doubt that they're getting is, is the feedback that the other person's getting. Yeah, it's, I understand that people want somebody who's their teacher to listen to these things. I understand it. And I'm not going to criticize them for their, where they're at and where they're growing because they're trying to do the best they can and they don't trust their own connection with them and God. But I'm just going to tell you straight up, if you're already questioning whether you should do something or questioning whether you should listen to somebody, then the answer is right, right up front. The Holy Spirit is telling you, don't. Now, I would have to be somewhat careful because sometimes it's conviction that might want us not to listen to somebody or something. So be careful. Make sure that it is not conviction. Because we have a lot of people who church hop. As soon as something's said in a church that convicts them or makes them feel bad, it's time to go to a new church. This pastor just stepped on my toes, and I don't want to, you know, he, he taught something I don't want to hear, so I'm going to go to a different church for a year or two until that pastor steps on my toes. Because the Holy Spirit's going to get you one way or the other. Yeah, wherever you go, yep. God's going with you. Yep. 
wherever you go, you're bringing your problems with you. Okay, and uh, we've talked, I've talked about this. You know, a lot of pastors will spend three to five years in a church, find out that they're having problems in their church, go to another church, uh, because they've been called to another church, and they'll spend three or five years there, have the same problems they had at their previous church, and they'll get called to another church, or quit the ministry, one or the other, and they never really realize that the problems are them. And wherever they go, they're going to have the same problems. And this is true of us as people. If we're trying to run from our problems, our problems go with us. Now, we may be free of them for a little while while everybody gets to know us and, and we get established and everything, but our problems will catch up with us again and again and again. Now, that doesn't mean God never moves us away, never moves us to a different church or anything like that, but we need to look at our motivation. Why are we doing this? Is this God that's telling me to do this, or is it me trying to get away from my problems? If you're trying to get away from your problems, don't. I've shared with people, whenever I'm trying to make a decision, if I'm in a bad place spiritually or emotionally, that is not the time to make a decision. Because I will always make a bad decision when I'm in a bad place spiritually or emotionally. Okay? Well, God, you know, things are just so bad, I've got to get out of this place. I've got to go someplace else and get to, you know, and I have learned in my life just to sit back and say, all right, when I'm not feeling so negative, when I'm not feeling so bad and I'm in God's word, then I will decide to ask God whether I should be making this move. And usually, no, I don't make the move. Okay, because it is not, you know, Satan lies to us all the time. He goes, the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. It never is. It may be for initially, but we bring our problems with us. And we get the same problems on the other side of the fence as we had. Oh, well, now I've got all these big problems. We're back to the other side of the fence. It was better over there because we forget what it was like on the other side of the fence. And we bang, jump back over the fence and we end up having the same problems all over again. When we're in a bad place, go before God. Come before him. Look to him to be our comfort. Because otherwise, we're going to be running forever. Yeah. Failing tests over and over again as we run from the problems in our life. And so our encouragement here from all of this is, remember, God loves us. And his love allows us to suffer. And that sounds so contradictory in its, in its term, but our, our suffering grows us and drives us toward God if we grow. If we run from God, our suffering will make us just suffer. Now, and those are those times when you know you failed and all it is was a bunch of suffering. And we look at Job. Job did pretty good for a while on his suffering. But he had three wonderful friends and a fourth one that wasn't considered his friend that, that just made him feel miserable. They kept hammering on him. Job, you're such a miserable person. You, you've got to have done something really bad to deserve all of this punishment. You know, nobody loses everything in, without, without a cause. And over and over again, they hammered at him until he got to the point where he said, God, come and face me. I want to, I want to talk to you. And in this case, God showed up. And he said he shut his mouth. He had no answer. And God goes, answer me, Job. Now, most of us have not had God show up in our life to make us answer, you know, for our accusations against him. 
But you know, how many times have we failed our test and just suffered for suffering sake? And then realize later on, oh God, you know, I should have learned the first 28 times that you put me through this problem. You know, God, I, I, why did it take me six years, 10 years, 20 years to learn this lesson? We really want to learn our lesson quickly. Turn to God and say, God, show me what it is you're trying to teach me. Go to him in prayer. Go to him quickly in prayer. He is the God of all comfort. When he puts us through trials, he wants to comfort us. And we need to just turn to him and say, God, what is it? How am I going to learn from this? Help me. And we hide in him. All through the book of Psalms that we just got done covering, he said, I am your shelter. I am your buckler. I am your shield. I am your defender. Hide in him. When do we get in trouble? When we're not hiding in him. You know, when you're hiding in God, we are protected. The arrows can't get to us. The storms can't get to us. The trials can't get to us because they pound on him instead of us. You want trouble? Get outside of God and get out in the storm and, and get pounded on. You know, get, get shot with the arrows. Get shot with whatever you want to, you know, the rifles, whatever. Get outside of God and just stand there and, and take the beating. You know, my preference is, as I've learned over the years, is get inside God. <laughs> Let him take the beating. It doesn't affect him. And he says, I want to be your defender. And, you know, that's a humbling thing for us to be able to say, God, I want you to defend me. God, I can't do it. I want you to do it. But it takes us humbling ourselves and saying, God, I just want to hide. I want to hide in you. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you that you love us, that you want to be our comfort, that you want to be our comfort so that we can learn to comfort others. Help us to always trust in you and, and guide and follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.